This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Natalie Belmonte? Just a reminder, I'm not diagnosing anybody in this video, only speculating about what could be happening in a situation like this. If you enjoy this video, please like it, subscribe to my channel, and consider supporting me on Patreon. I will put the link to Patreon in the description for this video. First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. Natalie Ann Belmonte was born in Georgetown, Guyana on May 29, 1968. Her father's name was Reginald and her mother, Cheryl. Natalie had one brother and one sister. When Natalie was seven, her family moved to Canada and stayed there for two years. After this, they moved to Florida. Natalie lived in Pembroke Pines, which is about a half hour west of Hollywood, Florida. Natalie earned a degree in elementary education from a college in Florida and worked as a teacher. In 1988, Natalie married. She had a daughter in 1991 and a son in 1993. At some point, Natalie and her husband divorced. In 2000, Natalie's brother died, and she adopted his 10-year-old son, Gerard Lopez, who went by the name Jerry. This same year, she started working at a Home Depot store. In 2003, Natalie became a real estate agent and worked for an agency in Weston, Florida which is not far from Pembroke Pines. In March 2008, Natalie's adopted son, Jerry, allegedly took about $20,000 worth of Natalie's jewelry and sold it at a secondhand store. Natalie wasn't too happy about this. She notified the police and Jerry was arrested. He confessed to the crime and was charged with grand theft. The same year this happened, 2008, Jerry pleaded guilty to an unrelated misdemeanor theft charge. In 2009, he was charged in connection with breaking into a residence where people were sleeping and with violating the terms of his probation. The charges were later reduced to trespassing. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. In June 2011, Jerry was arrested in connection with the grand theft case from three years earlier. The case had never been resolved. Natalie told the judge she wanted to drop the charges. She said that Jerry had pulled his life together over the last three years. On July 13, the judge set Jerry's bond at $1,000. Natalie posted the bond on July 14. Two days later, on July 16, 2011, Natalie and Jerry went to the graduation party of a friend. They left Natalie's house at about 6.59 p.m. in Natalie's red 2007 Lexus ES350. This was captured on surveillance cameras which were mounted on a house across the street. The neighbor had installed the cameras about a month earlier. Another neighbor said that they believed the cameras were installed specifically due to concerns over Jerry. Either way, the cameras were positioned in such a way that they covered the front of Natalie's house. On their way to the party, Natalie and Jerry stopped at a Walgreens drugstore and a Hess gas station. They were captured on video surveillance. Nothing looked out of the ordinary. Natalie and Jerry attended the graduation party. Some witnesses said that Natalie seemed to have a good time, 
but one witness would later say that Natalie and Jerry were arguing because Jerry wanted more out of the relationship with his adoptive mother. At about 2.49 p.m., now on July 17, Natalie and Jerry arrived back at Natalie's house. Natalie pulled her Lexus into the driveway. Sometime during the next two hours, Jerry entered Natalie's bedroom, committed an assault of a sexual nature, and then killed her through beating and strangulation. After committing the homicide, Jerry cleaned up the crime scene, or at least he attempted to. At 5.08 a.m., Jerry was captured on video surveillance exiting Natalie's house. He entered her vehicle, backed out of the driveway, pulled forward, and then backed up the driveway, positioning the trunk near the garage. Essentially, he just turned the car around. Four minutes later, Jerry can be seen at the front door carrying Natalie's body wrapped in a sheet from her house to the trunk of her car. Jerry drove away at 5.16 a.m. and returned eight minutes later. Over the next several minutes, Jerry can be seen putting large garbage bags into the trunk of Natalie's car. He left the house again at 6.23 a.m. He returned at 6.31 a.m. At 7.41 a.m., Jerry can be seen cleaning the interior and exterior of Natalie's Lexus. Later on the same day, July 17, Jerry and his brother contacted Natalie's sister, who in turn called 911 to report Natalie missing. The police responded and started an investigation. Here's what they found. Natalie's purse, cell phone, and car keys were in her house. Her vehicle was in the driveway. The driver's seat was pushed back like somebody taller than Natalie had been driving the car. The neighbor across the street with these surveillance cameras contacted the police and offered them access to the recordings. The police saw a blurry figure at Natalie's house loading something large into the trunk of her car. The car left and came back. Then they saw the mysterious person loading garbage bags into the trunk. The vehicle once again left and returned. Finally, they saw the figure cleaning Natalie's car. They thought that the mysterious person was Jerry, but they could not be sure at this point. The police declared Natalie's house a crime scene. They moved Jerry and Natalie's biological son to a hotel as the investigation continued. The police wanted to find Natalie's body and the three garbage bags that Jerry had loaded into the car. Based on how long Jerry was gone, specifically eight minutes each time he left, the police designated a search area. The trash bags were found in a dumpster at a nearby shopping center. Video surveillance captured Natalie's vehicle next to the dumpster three minutes after it left her house. The garbage bags contained towels, bedding, and pillows, which matched items in Natalie's house. The bags also contained a pair of shorts and a shirt, which matched the ones that Jerry was seen wearing in the video surveillance taken at the drugstore and the gas station. All the items in the garbage bags had Natalie's blood on them. On July 20, the police noticed that vultures were circling a wooded area less than a mile from Natalie's house. Natalie's body was discovered in this area. Jerry's semen was found on her body. Jerry was arrested and charged with murder. The state tried to prove that he committed first-degree murder, but the jury only found him guilty of second-degree murder. Jerry's defense team was elated that Jerry did not face a mandatory term of life in prison without the possibility of parole. At sentencing, Jerry received life in prison without the possibility of parole. I suppose his defense team started celebrating a little too early. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, 
then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now moving to my analysis. Here are my thoughts in a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, there's really no question that Jerry was guilty of murder. The evidence against him is nothing short of staggering. His DNA was found on Natalie's body. Her blood was found on the clothing that he was wearing right before the murder occurred. A figure which looks a lot like Jerry can be seen on video surveillance disposing of evidence. Items like bedding and towels from Natalie's house were found in a nearby dumpster. Video surveillance showed that Natalie's car was by that dumpster right after it was captured, leaving her house. Blood was found in the master bedroom, the foyer, on the driveway, and inside of Natalie's car. Jerry admitted to the police that he was the only one home with Natalie when she was murdered. The neighbor with the surveillance cameras was visited four times by Jerry on the day of the murder. Jerry was asking him what the cameras had captured overnight. This brings me to item number two. Despite the overwhelming evidence against Jerry, his defense attorneys promoted an alternate theory of the crime that involved a killer other than Jerry. Here's what they wanted the jury to believe. Natalie and Jerry came home from the graduation party and had consensual sex. It didn't matter that Natalie had adopted Jerry and never viewed him as a potential romantic partner. After having sex, Jerry passed out from drinking too much alcohol. At this point, a mysterious and unknown intruder somehow entered Natalie's house without forcing entry. Perhaps they used magical powers. The intruder suddenly became unhappy With his apparel options, he realized that he was not dressed for murder at all. He decided to take Jerry's clothing, specifically his shorts and t-shirt. Jerry was so out of it, he didn't even notice. After changing into Jerry's clothes, the intruder went into Natalie's bedroom, where he beat and strangled her. He didn't steal anything. He was only there to commit murder. 
the intruder, who is now a killer, made sure to commit the murder quietly in order to avoid waking up Jerry. Even though the killer did not live in the house, he was really concerned about the condition that the house was in after committing the homicide, like with the blood everywhere. The killer was capable of committing a brutal murder for no reason, but he drew the line at leaving a messy house behind. He worked diligently to clean up the crime scene. The killer disposed of Natalie's body, dumped clothing and bedding, and he tried to clean her vehicle. The mysterious killer then vanished without a trace, leaving Jerry to take the blame for the homicide. Item number three. After Jerry was convicted, he admitted that he was guilty. It's not like the submission was necessary. As I mentioned, there was no doubt in this case. Jerry implied that he didn't know what happened at the time of the murder. He was with his mother in her bedroom and just started hitting her head on the floor. After killing her, he tried to clean up the crime scene. Item number four. Jerry's behavior was out of control in the years leading up to Natalie's murder. He had mental health symptoms, but the exact nature of the symptoms was never reported. Jerry had been arrested a few times. One of those arrests occurred because he had stolen jewelry from his adoptive mother. After being charged with grand theft, Jerry was described by investigators as being unconcerned. Natalie was described as being upset. Her reaction was much different than Jerry's. It's clear that the two were not seeing eye to eye. Which brings me to item number five. Jerry did not view Natalie as most sons would view an adoptive mother. He had become infatuated with Natalie from a young age, probably starting not long after he was adopted. On one occasion when Jerry was in jail, he told several inmates he had fantasies about killing Natalie. The warning signs which were available to Natalie should have caused her to be extremely cautious, but she was not willing to give up on Jerry. On one card that she gave to him, Natalie wrote, I'm very proud of the man that you are becoming. Always remember the choices you make today determine the outcome of your future. On another card, Natalie wrote, You are the best son a mother could have. Item number six, what do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. After Natalie's brother died, she felt obligated to care for Jerry. She divorced not long before adopting him, so perhaps Jerry saw himself more like a romantic partner and less like an adoptive son, like he was trying to fill the role of husband. He developed feelings of attraction toward Natalie, which he eventually shared with her. He did not feel any shame. Natalie viewed the relationship in a completely different manner. She viewed herself as helping Jerry, supporting him, protecting him. Natalie had an interest in helping children in general. For example, not long before she died, she inquired with a friend of hers about starting a charity that would help children get necessary surgery. Natalie never viewed Jerry as a potential romantic partner or as a threat. When Natalie discovered that Jerry took her jewelry, she was furious with him. She had him criminally charged. This was a turning point in the relationship. Jerry became better at making Natalie believe that he was changing, despite obvious signs that he wasn't, like being arrested for other offenses. Natalie really wanted to believe that Jerry was turning his life around. She needed a win in this situation. She needed to be successful. She could not accept the truth that Jerry was a dangerous criminal. She acknowledged that he had problems, but she continued to believe that she was not in danger from him. When Jerry was arrested in 2011, in connection with the grand theft charge from 2008, 
He was angry at Natalie. She asked the judge to make it all go away, believing that Jerry had changed. Jerry was inspired by the faith that Natalie had in him. He became more determined to start a romantic relationship with her. At the graduation party, both Natalie and Jerry consumed alcohol. In this state of being disinhibited, Jerry demanded that his relationship with Natalie become romantic. She rejected him without thinking anything of it. She did not understand how dangerous this boundary violation could be. When they arrived back at Natalie's house, Jerry was no longer going to tolerate being rejected. After the murder, he made a clumsy effort to escape responsibility. Now moving to my final thoughts. Sometimes people cannot see warning signs in parent-child relationships. There is the assumption that the feelings of the parent must be mirrored by the children, like it's automatic. This is similar to a situation in a romantic relationship where one person thinks they are in love with another, but the feeling is not reciprocated. It's unrequited love. In the case of Natalie Belmonte, the mother-son relationship never properly formed. Jerry probably already lacked empathy and had boundary problems when he was adopted. Natalie thought that adopting him would offer her protection. The label of mother-son relationship would be enough to keep her safe. But it was not. Jerry had the word trust tattooed on his left arm, and on his right arm, he had the words no one. Jerry managed to become a living example of why that phrase is sometimes good advice. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.